Well, good morning. Morning. So to kick our series, our new series off in the book of Colossians, I, as I was preparing this message, I just, this, this children's book actually popped up. Uh, it's, it's something that our kids, a lot of our, um, a few of them actually really enjoyed reading, and I actually wanted to read it for you. Uh, it's in English and in Spanish, and it's going to be a little difficult reading like this, but I'll try to put on my best Mr. Rogers and, and, uh, <laughs> and read the English. So just one more. Uh, here, I don't know if we can, if you guys can see the picture, if we can do a little bit of a zoom in, but here it is. Ruby was always asking for just one more. Is that better, maybe? Just one more minute. Just one more hair thingy. <laughs> just one more sip. Looks like she's drinking her dad's coffee. <laughs> and just one more ride. Ahem. Just, uh, what is that? Just one moment, please. I guess she's at the restroom. Uh, okay, then. Just one more wish. Just one more push. Just one more scoop. You guys probably know what's coming up here, right? And uh uh-oh, aye, aye, I like that in Spanish. (laughs) Splat or plaf, right? Uh, Now Ruby has none. So Ruby, how about just one? Just one toy in the tub. Just one book before bed. And what's this? Just one more kiss? Okay, Ruby, just one more. Again, again. <laughs> so it's a cute little children's book. Uh, but, you know, it's funny. While that might just be a children's book, I, I, I wanted to read it with you because how many of us actually live the same way? Right? We might not be as cute as Ruby, uh, but we say just one more chip. Right? Uh, just one more scroll through Facebook. Just one more show. Right? And, and I hate it how Netflix and Hulu, like when the show stops, it just starts counting down. And the next thing you know it, it's like it started and you're like, well, the show's already started. So just one more show, right? I mean, how many of us have done that? Just one more bite, just one more look. We think these one mores are harmless to fill up our time, our minds, our energy, our efforts, and our days with just another show with more work, right, with just one more email, with extra calories, but is there ever an end to the just one mores? And when is enough enough? And does anything in this world truly satisfy? Today we're starting a new series on the letter to the Colossians, and as we study this letter, we'll discover the answer to that question, when is enough Enough. So if you have your Bibles or your apps, let's turn to Colossians in the New, in the New Testament. And as we're turning to the Colossians uh, in our Bibles, let's spend a bit of time examining the background of the letter just to, to kick off the series uh, here. And then if, if you look at the history of this and when it was written, it was written uh, by Paul around AD 60 to 61 and to the church in Colossae. So he's actually, when you read this letter, when we study this letter over the next following weeks, we'll see that he's actually specifically responding to what's going on in that church. But what's fascinating is that there are actually more similarities to the church in Colossae and to our church here today than we might, might be first aware of. The Colossians 
just like we sang right before and just like we read in this book, we're trying to figure out when enough was enough. The church in Colossae was trying to figure out as they faced neighbors, coworkers, and others in society who challenged them by word and deed, they were trying to figure out, hey, when is Christ enough and is he truly enough for me and for us? Well, friends, throughout the course of our lives, we will face opponents who will berate us, who will belittle us, who will scoff at us and try to tear us away from Christ. But as we'll see in Colossians, Christ is enough. There will be times in our lives where others will try to test our faith, cause us to doubt. But as we'll see in Colossians, Christ is enough. There will be cultural forces, the media, the news, peer pressure, and others that will try to silence our faith. But in those situations, as we'll see in Colossians, Christ is enough. There will be times when people will laugh at our faith, that when, when they will actually abandon their faith and their relationship with God. But as, but as we'll see in Colossians, Christ is enough. I mean, we sang this beautiful song that Aaron and the team led us through, right? Christ is enough. Christ is my reward and all my devotion, right? Now there's nothing in this world that could ever satisfy through every trial. My soul will sing, no turning back. I've been set free. Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in you, everything. Christ, my all in all, the joy of my salvation, and this hope will never fail Heaven is our home. Through every storm, my soul will sing. To Jesus is here. To God be the glory. And then the song goes on to say, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me. The world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. Through this series in the book of Colossians, I pray that this would be the anthem for our church. You know, favorite it on Spotify. Right, download it on your phone, turn it up as playing on YouTube every time you, you come on. Right, sing this song in the shower on the way to school before you go to bed while going to work. Sing this song, may this song and the truth of this song soak deep into your hearts because, friends, Christ is enough. May this be our anthem. So when we, over the next few weeks, look at the book of Colossians, we'll actually grow in our understanding of the hope that we have in Christ. That's what the, what the book of Colossians will teach us. We'll learn how to persevere in prayer. We will learn about the centrality and the supremacy of Christ. We will understand how to persevere through suffering, how to handle lies and fake news, how to overcome temptation, what it looks like to walk in freedom, how to handle conflict in our homes, how to grow in peace, and so much more. That is what the book of Colossians will teach us and what we'll be walking through these next weeks. So I pray that you would, you know, clear out whatever you have coming up on the Sundays and join us every week. If you're out of town, uh, out of town, you can turn in on uh, online, YouTube. I mean, we stream our services, but we do pray that as a church, this would be, um, that you would journey together with us so that we can study this book Together, So let's look at Colossians chapter 1, and we're actually going to camp out on the first two verses here. All right, Colossians chapter 1, starting from verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy our brother, 
to the saints in Christ at Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now this week, um, occasionally on Twitter, I like to ask polls, and it's just fun to see. It's not scientific by any means, but it's just fun to see what people say. And I asked this question on Twitter, when opening up a book, what's the very first thing you read? And I don't know if we have the results here or not, uh, but what, what actually came up was at the table of contents, so 36% answered introduction or preface, 23% said chapter 1, uh, 39% said the table of contents, and 2% said the conclusion. Now, when in college, it's, you know, and, and I was really curious what other people did, because in college, I would often skip over the intro, the table of contents, the preface. I just kind of want to go straight to my reading, because there's so much you have to read. And even if it was a textbook or what, I was just like, I don't care about any of that stuff. I just want to get my reading done so I can mark, yes, I got my reading done. But over the years, I've realized just how important the introduction and preface is to set the whole book up. And I find sometimes as we open up the scriptures, we skip the genealogies, right? We skip the greetings, We skip the first two verses like we see in Colossians, and we get straight to the the, the meat of the book. But if Scripture, if all Scripture, as we see in 2 Timothy 3.16, if all Scripture is inspired, if all Scripture is breathed by God, right, and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness, then shouldn't we pay attention to the first two verses as well? As Justin and I were preparing this week's message, we really wanted to camp out in these two verses. And I mean, throughout the rest of the series, we're not going to go two verses at a time, but we really wanted to set this book up for our entire series. And when you look at this, right, and just look at the first few words in Colossians 1 verse 1, right? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. When you look at those words, what's fascinating about this is the way that Paul describes himself, right? He doesn't describe himself this way in every letter. He doesn't describe himself and introduce himself this same way everywhere he goes. I mean, I don't know what you do when you go to a, a maybe a wedding because a, a friend or, or a children's friend is there and, and you've never met anyone there and you're never going to see them again. And, and every time you introduce yourself and say what you do for your work, it just goes into this long conversation that you don't want to go into. So, so because you don't, you're not ever going to see them again, you're just like, oh yeah, my name's Daniel. Yeah, I, you know, I, I work and you know, over there in downtown or whatever. And you just don't want to, you know, how often do we introduce ourselves differently? And maybe you're introducing yourself to someone that maybe is, is, is going to help you get somewhere or do something that you want to do. And so, so you tend to maybe shine light on your accomplishments somehow during your introduction or your conversation to each other. I mean, why is Paul introducing himself in this way? And what can we learn from this, right? In the book of Philippians, Paul says, hey, Paul and Timothy, servants, right? He introduces himself not as an apostle of Christ Jesus. He introduces himself as a servant of Christ Jesus, right? What does that mean, 
right there. And, and, or in Philemon, he says, Paul, he introduces himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Or in Acts 22.3, he says, hey, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the law of our ancestors. It's like, hey, my name's Daniel, and it's, it's like I were to say, and I didn't go to Harvard, but you know, it would be like, hey, I went to Harvard. I was like, I didn't ask what school you went to, right? It's just like you kind of throw that in there, right? That's kind of what it sounds like, right, when he introduces himself that way. So why, right, why is it that to the church in Colossae, why does he introduce himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, He introduces himself differently to this church because he wants him to understand. He's not trying to. He's not trying to lift himself up because if he was trying to lift himself up above everyone else, he would have said, "Hey, I went to this school. I I I did this. I was raised under Gamaliel, as you see here. I was I was doing this. I look at all the things I did." No, what he was trying to do in introducing himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus was that he wanted the church to understand that his authority in writing, his authority in speaking to them, does not derive from his education, from his lineage, from his works, or anything that he is done. He is saying, hey, guys, remember, God called me. This is basically what he's saying. He's like, God called me when I was actually trying to oppose him. He's like, hey, church in Colossae, God called me when I actually wanted to kill all of you and all Christians. And he actually, on the way, radically transformed my life. My life is not my own anymore. And as a result, it's actually better than it's ever been before, right? In a sense, he's saying that he's conveying that attitude and that heart by saying, hey, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. He's deriving his identity from who Jesus has called him to be and not from what he does for a living nor from what he did in the past. I mean, how often do we categorize ourselves and compare ourselves from others? Now, I was talking about this with my wife a little bit this past week, actually a couple days ago. And have you ever noticed, and some of you may notice other people doing this. Some of you may actually be doing this. Uh, full caveat, I'm not speaking directly to any of you here because I've seen you do this to me or seen you to do this to others. But if you feel conviction from the Lord, that is not me saying anything, right? That might just be the Holy Spirit. But here's what sometimes happens and and you know you know you kind of watch right when you introduce yourself to someone you know watch their eyes especially if you meet them for the first time because there's some people who when you say hi and you see someone for the first time they go like this have you ever seen that or have you ever done that now some of you may be doing that subconsciously and it's just like it's like you you know you're not really you don't really care it's just like it's it's habit at this point in your life, but I see what you're doing, (laughs) right? And other people may notice it too. And the reason I bring this up is because a lot of times human beings, and we'll do this because subconsciously we're comparing ourselves to the other person, right? We're comparing ourselves. And what you do when you're doing that is you're basically, you're not just saying, oh, I like your shoes or I like your this or I like your that. You might actually be judging them and assessing them 
and their, by their socioeconomic level, by their intelligence, their aptitude, their personal worth, their physical occupation. Hey, try going into a high-end clothing or shoe store wearing flip-flops, and you've never gotten a pedicure, and your hair, and your, you know, your feet are hairy like mine, right? I mean, try doing that and just see how they treat you compared to going into a store like that, dressed in a suit, really nice shoes, polished, see how differently they'll treat you. I mean, this is what human beings do. We categorize, not to say that this is a good thing, but we often categorize and compare ourselves to others. So in these first few words, what Paul is saying and what he's reminding us is, hey, your identity is not what you wear. It's not what you do, what you have, who you know, where you've been, or what you've done. Your identity is rooted in who knows you. So he's saying, hey, my name is Paul. It's not what all I've done. No, my name is Paul, and I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. Well, the second thing that we discover here in the first few verses is that the priority is, is I mean, we, we, we can see the priority of Paul's life and we can see just in these two verses how he organizes his time and what he values, right? Look, look at this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will and, right, he says, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters. Paul here is, I don't know if you've noticed this, but he is actually including Timothy as a co-sender of this letter. Now, did that bring Paul greater credibility to mention Timothy's name? No. If Timothy were going out, it would bring credibility for him to say that he was with Paul. But what does Paul have to gain by saying and mentioning Timothy as a co-sender of this letter? He he, he wasn't gaining anything. In fact, he he probably could have omitted Timothy's name and you probably, I mean, the letter would have been exactly the same. But by including Timothy, we actually see Paul's heart and his priorities. Paul realizes that life is better together. Paul realizes that to live a vibrant life in Christ, to serve Christ as he deserves, we need to do it along with one another. Which is why he also actually calls the brothers, you know, the church at Colossae, his brothers and sisters. He realizes that he can only accomplish so much on his own, and there's actually no harm if he uses his platform and his ministry to lift others up and build others up. Friends, we live so often with this scarcity mindset, right? We live with this mindset that, hey, if, 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 if I help that friend with their homework or if I help my coworker with their project, then somehow we feel like we're not going to be as good or our work is not going to be as valued or appreciated or they're somehow going to get better than us or, 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 or climb on top of us, right? We, we have this attitude in our lives and our culture feeds it to us. We're like, hey, hey, there can only be one top dog. There can only be, what if there's only one promotion this next year? Or what if there's only, what if, what if your teacher decides to grade on a curve, Right? Then what are you going to do? No, you can't help others. You need to just, maybe you can help them a little bit. 
But it's like doggy dog, fend for yourself. And we live so often in our world with this scarcity mindset. What would it look like if we actually lived with an abundant life, an abundant mindset, and a, gener- and a generous mindset? Saying, hey, you know what? I, yes, I, I'm finisher and I'm going to help my coworker. I may not ever get recognized for this or recognized for the way I'm helping my neighbor or another mom who is struggling. You know, they have three kids running around and you just kind of want to help them out by buying their meal at Chick-fil-A. You know what I'm talking about? Like you're saying, and you're never going to see them again and you just want it. You're never going to get credit for it. But what would it look like if we were to bless others without a desire for recognition, without a desire or a thought of how they're going to then scratch our backs. You know, what if we actually do everything onto the Lord because he owns cattle on a thousand hills, right? He, he's the one that we ultimately need to be living for, not others and recognition and other people owing us things. Right? We see in these first two verses that Paul is living with this mindset of abundance and of generosity. So by making Timothy a co-sender of this letter, Paul is lifting his brother up. And he's saying to the church in Colossae, hey, just like you trust me, trust him as well. Just think about all that Paul has done for Timothy, right? Timothy joined Paul in his missionary travels. Timothy, uh, Paul called Timothy his son in 1 Corinthians 4.17. Paul trusted Timothy as an emissary by sending him to various churches to resolve conflicts in Philippians 2.19. Paul endorses Timothy to others in 1 Corinthians 16.10. What we are seeing here in these two verses is actually an illustration of one of our core values here as a church. And if you've missed our core values series, if you haven't been here for a couple weeks or you kind of came in for one and, and not the others, you can go online and watch or, or on the podcast, listen to all the messages because we actually go through our core values as a church, what it means to be a part of the fellowship. And one of the core values is a plurality in leadership, right? Scott Matthews is the campus pastor at this church, right? Len Taylor is the campus pastor at the Mount Juliet campus, uh, Aaron is the worship pastor over all the worship teams, right? Justin is the lead teaching pastor, and I'm a part of Justin's team, right? We see as a church this importance that, hey, and, and, and even on top of that, we have elders who are then shepherding and leading this church, right? Paul exemplifies our value, the plurality and leadership, because he is saying, hey, I could have done this myself. I could have called the church, not my brothers and sisters. I could have called them, hey, you guys that I'm, you know, helping. He, he could have said, hey, Timothy is, you know, the, you know just some guy. I, you, you don't really need to worry about him. No, he is raising him up. He is sharing leadership. And he's saying life is better together. Now, here's the thing. There's this word phrase here, right? I mean, in verse 2, to the saints in Christ, right? Take a look at that. In Christ. Uh, if you have your Bibles or a pen or, and you want to draw something or you want to circle something or highlight something, in Christ is probably one of the most significant theological concepts in the New Testament. 
Right, yeah, I mean, not as significant as the resurrection or, you know, not as significant as that. But when you look at reading and what to understand salvation, to understand what salvation fully means and what Paul means by salvation in Christ, the number of academic articles and books and commentaries that have been written on that phrase is astounding. I remember in seminary, in Christ was like three to four weeks of class just to understand what in Christ means. Now, this, you know, I'm going to read a few points that this commentator, David E. Garland, says about in Christ because, I mean, I, I was looking through and I was like, there's no way I can put it as well as him. So just for a moment, let's just take a look at this and see what it means to be in Christ. And, and the reason we're, we're sharing this, right, because Paul is referring, right, he is referring to the recipients of this letter as the saints in Christ, right? He's referring to them. He's referring to us as faithful brothers and sisters. So he is saying, hey, you are called by God and saved by Christ just as I myself am. So that, that's kind of the context of this. But let me read what this one commentator says about this concept in Christ. All right, here we go. To be in Christ means to be incorporated in him so that he encompasses the entire life of the believer. So what I'm about to read to you is not something where you're like, hey, I got to write all this down. No, every time you see this phrasing in the New Testament, in Christ, I want you to remember or try to remember a few of these points like what it actually means when we read in Christ. The recipients here may be Colossians, but the only identity that matters to God is that they are in Christ, that they are Christians. That means that Christ, being in Christ, determines everything in their lives. Paul will later make clear in the letter that his death becomes their death, Right, this is what it means to be in Christ, that his burial means their burial, that his resurrection means their resurrection, that his victory means their victory. Right? That's in Christ. To be in Christ means that the Colossians are exclusively joined to Christ and to no other. In other words, you cannot be in Artemis, you cannot be in another god or a goddess and also be in Christ. He's saying being in Christ means that there needs to be this separation from the world, from other gods and others. To be in Christ means that Christ determines the behavior that your behavior. So in other words, one cannot be in the world or into magic or drugs, for example, and be in Christ. Elsewhere, Paul uses this basic idea to denounce immorality. He says in 1 Corinthians 6.15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Right? To be in Christ means that believers are inseparably joined to him. You know that beautiful passage, Romans 8.38-39? to Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those verses demonstrate what it means to be in Christ. When you are in Christ, nothing can separate you from our Lord. To be in Christ means, I love this, that believers are also joined to a new family. 
To be in Christ means that the old is gone and the new has come. To be in Christ means that the dividing lines that our culture uses to split us up between Democrats and conservatives, from people who you know, are members of the NRA and those who aren't members to those who are on this side of political and gun issues and those who are on that side, all these things and, and, and ethnically and all, you know, everything that our culture and the media uses to separate us and try to divide the church to be in Christ means, hey, all that stuff, that's all secondary stuff, guys. It's all secondary. To be in Christ means that doesn't actually really Matter What matters is that you are loving your enemies regardless of what their views and their beliefs and their attitudes and what memberships that they may hold. That you love them. It's easy to love someone who loves you. It's easy to love someone who agrees with you. But hey, anyone can do that, as Christ said. To be in Christ means that actually we are part of a new family. All dividing lines are destroyed. Everything that has separated us is no more. We are now a new family. Being in Christ means that we have a new identity regardless of race, nationality, clan, tribe, anything. In other words, the promises of Christ and the work of Christ apply to those of us today who have a relationship with God and who are committed to Christ just as it did to the church in Colossae. Verse 2, at the end of it, it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. This last phrase, though it's quite a customary greeting from Paul, it actually has a lot of meaning packed into it. Paul in his word choice, right, grace to you and peace, grace and peace, he was actually incredibly intentional to us. Now, he, he does this, right? He says grace to you and peace, and there's a lot beyond that if, if you wanted to dig into uh, specifically what that meant and why he used those words over others. But, but in essence, Paul uses these words because he wants to communicate God's grace and God's peace to the Colossians. Right, think about this. At the end of, so at the beginning of the, the book, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and, and flip all the way to the end. What are the four last words in this book? The four last words. Grace be with you. Paul, more than any other letter here, is actually wanting to communicate and, and the, the culture, the feel of this entire letter that we're going to be studying over the next few weeks. He's saying, hey, grace be with you. I want you to, if you leave with anything, to understand and be filled with the grace of Christ from God our Father. So what is grace? What is grace? Now, I mean, my children, I, I have an eight-year-old, actually almost nine-year-old, a seven-and-a-half-year-old, and a three, well, almost, almost four-year-old now. And, and as they grow, every year provides more and more challenges, especially as they exert their own will, and they don't necessarily just say yes to everything that mom and dad ask them to do. So what ends up happening is they begin lying. 
right? I mean, how many of you parents struggle with your kids lying? I mean, you don't need to, if you're sitting with your kids, you know, don't point them out there, right? But how many of you struggle with that? And, and if you are living in, at, at home with your parents or if you're living by yourself or with a roommate, I mean, how many of you in the daily life of things struggle with lying? Well, okay, so there was an incident a couple weeks ago at our home where uh, there was just, there was lying, and it was just, you know, we were trying to figure out, okay, how do we, you know, we're, you know, immediately we always go to law. We're like, oh, you're going to get punished, or, you're, you know, consequent, you know, there's earthly consequences, there's, you know, heavenly consequences, there's, you know, we just, our natural response is not grace, it's law. It's the letter of the law, right? And it's like, because it's like, well, you, you, you lied, you stole, I, I mean, yeah, it's a safe environment at home, but if you go out there, you're going to get fired from your job. You're going to do this. You're, you know, if you get failed, you, you know, we try to scare them. <laughs> it doesn't work. Well, I hope it's working a little bit, but uh, it, it doesn't really work because they're just doing it over and over again. So, so it's just, we started taking away privileges here, there, and, and then that night it was, you know, it was Friday and, and there was a school dance, like daddy-daughter dance that night. And I, I, you know, they're so excited about it. It was just like, we've been working up to it. And, and you know, it was just, and w- one of the reasons they like the daddy-daughter dances, and if you've ever been to it, there's like, what, 15 or 20% of the time there is actually the daddy-daughter dance. The rest of the time is the girls are just all playing and eating candy and running around and doing their thing. All right, and then occasionally they'll come to their dad and we'll dance for a little bit and then they'll go and play again. So it's really actually quite amusing because at daddy-daughter dances, it's just dads all around the entire gym just talking to each other in suits. And it's super hot and it's just like, I don't want to be here, you don't want to be here. And it's just, you know, it's just, that's, that's the feel. Now, even though that's the case, I enjoy dancing with my kids and it's fun, right? It's fun. They really enjoy it. So honestly, seriously, she lied, one of, one of my kids lied, and, and was like, okay, well, we're, I wasn't going to say we weren't going to go to the dance, but it just, she wasn't being honest. She wasn't telling the truth, even though I know she lied. And I was like, well, if you're not going to tell the truth, then we're going to do this. And I started taking all these things. I was like, well, you can't have, yeah, sure, we'll go, but you can't have any candy there. I was like, yeah, we're sure, we'll go, but you can't play with any of your friends. You have to be beside me the entire time. Are you going to tell me the truth or not, right? I was like, default law, right? And then I was like, okay, we're not even going to go. And it was like wailing and tearings, and Christina was like, <laughs> and I was like, you wait right there. And I go and talk to Christina. She's like, what about Grace? <laughs> so I calmed down, right? I calmed down, and then, you know, we prayed about it, and I was like, yeah, you're right, you're right. Okay, you know, I think the one punishment uh, was enough, and we don't need to keep on taking away all these things. So I went back with her, and she's in tears and really upset and all this, and and, and, and I go back to her, and I'm like, okay, okay, you know what you did, and she confessed. You know what you did. You know this has been a pattern in your life, and you know it's really hard for mommy and daddy to trust you, All right? And it's, it's going to be hard. I mean, we're not going to necessarily trust you immediately any, in, in the future times. We want to. not saying we don't love you. We love you, but trust is something that needs to be built, so here's the consequence, but we'll go to the dance. You can play with your friends. You can eat candy. We're going to have a great time together. And then she was like, oh. And I was like, you know, I was like, Victoria, what do you feel right now? 
And she's like, I feel happy. I feel relieved. I feel, I was like, yes, okay, that feeling you have right now in this moment, I don't want you to forget it because that's grace. It's that feeling of when what you did, this is what you deserved, but now you're not going to get that because it's grace. And that feeling you feel right now, that is what Christ did to you on the cross. And we started sharing that and connecting that to the gospel, right? That is grace. Grace is getting something we don't deserve. And living out grace is not natural for us, right? Anyone say amen to that, right? I mean, justification is what we want, right? How many of you are happy when, when, when a mass murderer gets the electric chair? Now, you may not actually be, you know, and I don't want anyone, you know, we're not going to get political here and all that stuff. And I'm Canadian, and we don't do that in Canada, right? But I bring that up because when you see that happen, regardless of what you think about the electric chair, when you see that happen, there's this sense in your heart that justice has been accomplished, right? Now, you may 100% disagree with me, but naturally in our flesh, We desire justification. We desire justice. We desire law. That is naturally what we feel. But when we come before Christ, Jesus says, hey, actually, while you might feel that way, you actually deserve death as much as that person does as well. We actually all deserve the electric chair for all that we've done in our lives. Grace, right? Grace is unnatural in all. Our world. And when we as a church, when we live out grace in our parenting, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our friendships, at school, with our parents, when we live out grace, we are living in a way that the world will see and be like, there is something different about you. And that, my friends, is one of the strongest testimonies, one of the strongest witnesses that we can have as Christians. Paul here, as a result, is saying, grace, friends, grace to you. What you can't accomplish in your own natural power, grace to you. Grace is unearned, but when you give it, and that's bringing glory to God. So that's grace. But, you know, Paul also says peace, right? He's not saying peace like peace from wars, peace from chaos. And in fact, when I read peace like this, the first thing that comes into my mind is that John Lennon song, you know, Happy Christmas. Or it's like, you know, war is over, right? That, like that is literally the thing that comes into my mind when I think peace. But Paul's not singing a John Lennon song. Right, Paul is not thinking that. Paul is actually considering and talking about a peace that is at the center of who we are, of who God has called us and created us to be. He is saying, hey, there's there's storms in life. The storms in life are going to come. The storms in life are going to try to take over like it says in Matthew 7. But the peace that I want to give you is the peace that, you know, it's like your house is being built on the rock and no matter what comes your way, you will stand firm. That 
kind of peace. It's that peace as we read in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives, so do not let your hearts be troubled or afraid. Right? It's that peace like we read in Colossians 3.15, and let the peace of Christ to which you are also called in one body rule your hearts and be thankful. Paul here is saying, hey, remember back to the Garden of Eden? That peace? That's the peace that we want you to experience in Christ and what you are going to be a part of bringing here. So, friends, first two verses as we come to the end of this message, this is not just a greeting to skip over. We could actually, I know I'm over time and we could probably keep on going, but this is not a greeting that we can skip over. And what I want to leave with you here is the cyclical nature of grace and peace. Paul is sharing that peace overflows, that when you extend grace, when I extend grace to my daughters, they experience peace. And that peace that they experience is then lived out by being able to then extend grace to others, which then extends peace, right? Grace and peace have a cyclical nature. And isn't that maybe why Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are the peace makers, makers 